So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> I caught a cold while I was in Hawaii. Because, of course I did. We have been spending some time in Matthew 13 over the last few weeks, and it's a chapter that is a really interesting one, mainly because it is full of different parables. There are seven parables in this chapter, the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the mustard seed, and the yeast, the hidden treasure, and the pearl, and the parable of the net. And in all of these parables, Jesus is talking about something specific. Yes, he's talking about these, these different items or things and their effect, but he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And we started our study of this chapter in an unorthodox place. We started in the middle, which is not where you usually start studying something where the, all these things are put together. But we looked first at the parables of the treasure and the pearl, and those parables tell us that the kingdom is so valuable that anyone who experiences it in its true form will not question whether it is worth giving up everything in order to obtain it. They will give all that they have, the whole collection of their life, in order to have the kingdom because there is nothing that compares to the kingdom. Nothing. So when one encounters the kingdom, all doubt, all fear, all all systems of value are thrown upside down and on their head because the kingdom is so great. And this is important because it tells us that when people experience the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived, that their lives will be changed by that encounter with him. Next, we looked at the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast, and, and they taught us a valuable lesson, <clears throat> excuse me, which is the kingdom of heaven is not in danger of being overcome. At times we run around in a panic. I'm excuse me for a second. <coughs> Cold, Hawaii. Yeah, it's, it's happening. At times we run around in a panic acting as if the actions of those who do not believe in God will overcome the kingdom that God has established. And I want you to know, as we said last time, the kingdom is too powerful to be overwhelmed by any human action. Our God is too powerful to disappear simply because others don't believe in him. Therefore, the kingdom does not really need us to stand up and protect it, beating others into submission for its sake. We are to be salt and light. But we must remember that God does not view those who do not believe in him as his enemies. They are not his enemies. In his eyes, they are lost sheep for whom he would leave the 99 behind to go and chase down and rescue the one. And, and so therefore we realize the power of the kingdom uh, in this world is not found in its morality. It is found in the way that it radically loves people, especially those who are on the outside. 
So we're working our way from the middle out. So today, we are going to add one more piece to this story. We're going to look at the parables of the weeds and the nets. But before we do so, let's prep ourselves. You ready? Get your prep hats on. Here we go. There is a tradition that has been around as long as people have been around. And that tradition is to condemn those who are out of step with Scripture or even worse, out of step with us. That makes us uncomfortable. We don't really want a part of that. And we are constantly looking for lines to draw. Sometimes, this is my wife, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Thank you, dear. Where was I? Just, I I was blinded by her beauty. Sometimes we have drawn so many lines that our circle is only big enough to include certain people who think and look and act like us. And it doesn't take much of a mental exercise in order to look at all the ways we have drawn these lines and what those lines represent, whether it's worship styles, what women can and can't do, whether you can have a kitchen in your building or have a Sunday morning Bible class. There are all sorts of lines that we can draw. And ultimately, when we're drawing these lines around us, those lines are there to keep us away, or rather to keep those who are not like us away, that, that we might have some sort of separation from them. Now, I don't mean to trivialize any of these things. I know that good people who love God have drawn these lines because they believe it is what God wants them to do, that in some ways we as Christians are line drawers. Well, you can't cross this line. Don't even look at this line. However, we must recognize that our lines do not always represent what God wants. Fair? They don't always represent what God wants. Sometimes they represent what we want as well. Now, this practice comes honestly to us, and here's why it comes honestly We feel a great pressure as Christians to speak into this world, to speak the truth of God to a world that does not wholly believe in him. And in particular, we feel a great pressure to speak into what is right and what is wrong. This is right. This is what Christians do. This is wrong. This is not what Christians do. We feel pressure to draw lines as to what beliefs or behaviors are unacceptable. To put it simply, at times, it seems that we might be, because of the pressure, we might be more comfortable drawing lines than erasing them. Because after all, erasing a line that has been there forever... What does that mean? Think of all the baggage we carry with that. Well, does that mean my grandfather was wrong about blah, blah, blah? Or my mom taught me this, and are you saying that she'd blah, blah? No, I'm not saying any of those things. I'm sure your grandfather and mother were lovely people. But if someone engages in beliefs or behaviors that we don't accept or approve of for whatever reason, what do they become? unacceptable. 
And think about that word for a second. What does unacceptable mean? Literally, I can't accept you. And so the message of Christianity that a lot of people hear as they go out is, (coughs) it's just like that. That they hear is, until you change these things about you, if you want help making the list, I will help you make the list. If you, until you change these things about you, you are not acceptable to me. And by extension, because I am speaking on behalf of God, you are also not acceptable to him. And it creates this system in which in order for someone to come to know the love of God, they first have to change everything about themselves in order for God to love them. God doesn't love you as you are. He loves you as you will be. That feels uncomfortable. Hopefully it feels uncomfortable to you too. (coughs) Man, sorry. Now to be fair, this happens on both ends of the spectrum. I have been judged for being too conservative. I've also been judged for being too liberal. Maybe I'm just right. I don't know. (laughs) But when it comes to condemning people and when it comes to judgment of people, I take a tact that not everyone has agreed with over time. And my personal approach to that is that I do not claim responsibility for who can and cannot be saved. Now, there are specific reasons why I do not claim that responsibility. Number one, I don't believe it's my job. I know I'm a pastor. I know that I preach and I teach, but I still don't think it's my job. And the main reason I don't think it's my job is because I don't think I'm qualified to make those kinds of decisions. In fact, I I know I'm not. I know I'm not the right person to stand up and say, and to condemn someone else for what they do. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, Please do understand me. Please don't misunderstand me. I believe there are many things we can know without a doubt through Scripture. That is plain. I'm not saying there are not instructions or, or, or things that we are to do. But I also know that the one who formed the Scripture has the final say in how he is going to apply it. And I got news for you. Whatever I think about how he should apply it doesn't really matter. God is going to do as he sees fit. So I prefer to let him do the heavy lifting. But we are going to look this morning into the idea, the topic of judgment and what that looks like. So we have some important questions here that we're going to try to answer this morning. Uh, Number one Who is qualified to judge? It's an important question, okay? Number two, what is our role in terms of calling out sin specifically in others? Number three, what is the difference between identifying sin and condemning someone for sin? And number four, what should the nature of our voice be in a world that rejects God? Okay? Those are four questions that we are going to try to answer in some way this morning. Let's pray together.
God, we pray for wisdom and insight this morning. As we look at how you view us, how we view ourselves, how we look at others. God, may our hearts be open to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start with the parable of the weeds. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, <clears throat> Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. I really didn't think this was going to be a problem today. I'm <laughs> it's weird. Okay. So what are the things that we need to take note of? Uh, okay, number one, good seed was sown in the field. That seed grew to be wheat. Bad seed was sown in the field. That seed grew to be weeds. Both seeds grew in the same soil. We are not told about any sort of different kinds there. The soil is not the issue. The issue is uh, what seed the soil received. Now, the servants, when they see that wheat and weeds are growing up together, they ask an important question. They say, is the seed that you sow not good? Is it bad seed because there's weeds in it? And this is the easiest explanation that there were some weeds mixed in with the seeds. But the owner acknowledged that the, that the wheat was good. The weeds came from whom? An enemy. An enemy sowed the weeds into the field. Now, why did the enemy do this? Well, who is the enemy the enemy of? The owner. The one who sowed the seed. He is the enemy of the owner. And the enemy wanted to hurt the owner's crop by growing weeds. So he wants somehow to make sure that the amount of wheat that the owner harvests is less than what he would have harvested if the weeds were not there. Now, why are the weeds a danger to the wheat. Well, the weeds would take resources from the wheat and in some cases would keep the wheat from growing to be healthy. So maybe it's taking the light that the wheat should get. Maybe it's wrapping itself around the roots. There's all different kinds of ideas you could go with here. 
But we know that the weeds are put there to be a danger to the wheat and to make the crop smaller. So he wants to hurt the wheat, but ultimately his goal is to hurt the owner so that he will take less in. What can they do about it? Well, there's only two options presented. One is to go into the field and pull the weeds. Logical, right? This is what we talk about doing when we walk by weeds somewhere. We don't actually do it all the time, but we do talk about it. But the owner says no, because by pulling up weeds, what might happen? You might damage the wheat as well. That's a deep thought for you to ponder on for a little bit. So they will wait until it is time to harvest, and then the two will be separated. Weeds from wheat. Pretty straightforward, right? Okay, let's turn to verses 47 through 52. This is the parable of nets. Let's take a gander at what it has to say here. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Okay. What do we need to note here? Number one, what kinds of fish are caught in the net? All kinds of fish. This is important. The net caught all kinds of fish. Not one kind, not two kinds. All kinds of fish. Some of those fish were good, and some of them were bad. You could tell the bad ones because they had leather jackets and switchblades and <laughs> tattoos. Now, not all of one kind were good, and not all of one kind were bad. There were many kinds, and amongst all those kinds, some were good and some were bad. Jesus is not making the point that all the good fish are the same and all the bad fish are the same. You with me? Good. They are separated when? At the end, when they're all brought to shore. And they are separated by good and bad. Fish that are keepable, fish that are not keepable. And it is in this final sorting where it is determined whether the fish are good or bad. They're not even bothering to determine as they're pulling the nets in. They just pull the nets in. And whatever comes with it, they take to shore. They are not separated along the way. This parallels, Jesus says, what will happen at the end of the age. The good and bad will be separated by the angels. The bad will be burned, the good will be kept, and there will be much gnashing of teeth. Then there is this last line that is thrown in. Every teacher of the law 
is like the owner of a house that brings out new treasures as well as old. I actually didn't put that whole thing in there. I want to read the whole thing. Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Okay, this is an interesting thing that Jesus sets up here. Because <clears throat> again, it's not one kind of person. It is someone who is what? Teacher of the law, meaning they know the law and they know what the law says. But they are also what? A disciple of the kingdom of heaven. And being a disciple of the kingdom of heaven means what? You're following Jesus. And what is Jesus' message? It's the gospel. That God loves you and wants you to be saved if you will believe in him. So every teacher of the law is that has become a disciple is like this. They bring out old as well as new. Which means, are they going to talk some about the law? Yes. But what are they also going to talk about? Grace. They will talk about what you should do, but the what you should do is peppered with grace. Maybe even overwhelmed with grace. Isn't that interesting? The treasure is not all the same. It's from different times and different conditions. The, me, the thing that makes it similar, however, is that it is all treasure. Some new, some old. And this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. A teacher comes and brings the old with the new, and it all works together because it's all treasure. Now, in the middle of all of this, we are given an explanation for the parable of the weeds. So look at verses 36 through 43. It's similar to the explanation <clears throat> that we get about the fish, but there are some key differences. So again, verses 36 through 43. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, <clears throat> Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. <clears throat> he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels." As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, the disciples asked for an explanation, which I'm really glad they did. It's very helpful to us that they asked for an explanation. I wish they had done it more. <laughs> um, but we get an explanation here. And so where do we start? Well, we start with, in Jesus' explanation, the field is what? The field is the world. Now, either type of seed can grow in the world. 
But what grows is dependent upon what? Which seed is planted in that space? Now, who is sowing the wheat? More specifically, the Son of Man, i.e. Jesus, is sowing the seed into the field. Who is sowing the weeds? The evil one, the devil. Now, we have to be careful how we interpret these words here because they can be problematic. Let me tell you why they can be problematic. On one hand, it looks like Jesus is saying that the wheat is all Christians and the weeds are not. I mean, it does, it does look that way, right? But we have to be careful because there's a, there's an, there's a, a tension in the analogy if we're going specifically that way, which is he explains why something became wheat and why something became weeds. And it's because of the seed that was planted. So if we're taking this literally as Jesus says it, there's a problem because the weeds were weeds from the beginning and they never had a chance to become wheat. You hear what I'm saying? And that's, that's not consistent with the gospel that we know, right? The gospel that we know says the weeds can become wheat, right? But that's not the point of the parable that he's telling here. Let's look at it a different way. There are two kinds of plants growing in the world. So for this example, there are not all the plants. There are just two. One is wheat, one is weeds. What makes the wheat wheat? The world, the soil, receive the seeds of the kingdom, and that is wheat. What makes the weeds weeds? The world received the seeds of the evil one that was sown there. The world can grow either one, but it can only grow what was sown there. The wheat and the weeds are the product of growth within the place where those seeds fell. So we can look at that and say, you know, we understand that wheat grew there or weeds grew there, but the earth had opportunity to grow both. The, weed had op- the, the earth had opportunity to grow both, and it grew whichever seed was more prominent where it was. That's, that's, that's a better interpretation of, of what Jesus is saying. We can also deduce from the parable of the sower that not all seeds grow where they fell, right? Because there are, in fact, different kinds of soil. Uh, But this parable is not really about this. I know I just explained it all to you, but I just want to get that out of the way. The parable is not really all about this. The parable is about what you do when weeds and wheat are growing together. Because the fact of the matter is, weeds and wheat are going to grow together. The kingdom and the influence of the evil one are going to grow side by side. And so what do you do when that's happening? The owner wanted the world to be a place that just grows wheat. The evil one wanted to destroy that plant, so he sowed weeds into the wheat. And so the owner has to deal with this problem because he still wants to harvest as much wheat as he possibly can. At this point, that is his goal. I want all the wheat. And if I go in and start pulling weeds, invariably, I am going to pull up some wheat as well. 
because it's too early in the process. Everything is still growing. Things are still changing. And this stalk of wheat might not be strong enough. Its roots might not go deep enough into the ground to stay put when I pull this weed that's right next to it. And to the owner, it is infinitely more important that the weed has opportunity to grow than that the weeds are removed. It's, it's a completely different value. This is not for, you know, aesthetic reasons. He doesn't care how it looks. But owner, there's so many weeds out there. Yes, I know, I see them. But what's more important is that the wheat gets a chance to grow. And this is a big point here for us. The people of the kingdom can be hurt by pulling the people of the evil one out of the ground around them before it is time. Let me, can I just, let me say that one more time. The people of the kingdom can be hurt by pulling the people of the evil one out of the ground around them before it is time. So he told his workers to wait it out. The wheat will be wheat, the weeds will be weeds, and they will be separated at the end when it is time to harvest. Now, as believers, as stalks of wheat, how is it that having the weeds pulled around us, how is it that that can hurt us? I mean, that's kind of the big question, right? What's that? Yeah. It, it can mess up your roots. So understand this. Let me give you just one example because there's a lot we could go with. But let's say... Um, Let's say that you have, uh, there is someone in your life, you're really going to have to use your imaginations for this. There's someone in your life that is away from God. I know you probably can't think of anyone right now, but just give it some time to ruminate. There is someone in your life that is away from God, and you have been trying to love that person into the kingdom. You are doing your best to be gracious, to be kind, to be loving to them. But someone from your church uh, you don't go here, by the way. Someone from your church approaches that same person and invites you to have a Bible study with that person. And in that study, this person goes through the Bible to prove to this person how bad their life is. And there's no mention about the love or grace of God. Now, this is not a far-out example, by the way. This is a pretty normal example. And because of your friend's interaction with this person that is taking them through this Bible study, they walk away from God. I don't want anything to do with this. And you walk up to them later and you say, I, you know, I'm sorry that went that way. And j just tell me about how you feel. And that person says, well, I will never go to a church. Because all God cares about is what I do, but he doesn't care about me. Now, if that happens enough t 
to you, what's going to happen to your roots? They're going to grow more and more shallow. So someone came in trying to remove this weed, and all they did was pull you up out of the dirt further. What happens if they pull a weed on the other side? How long is it going to take before you decide, I don't think I want to be a part of this either? So how does pulling up the weeds hurt the wheat? There's one example of how it can happen. So what do we do with all of this? Excellent question. Um, while these parables explain how some things will be at the end of time, they also speak to what we do now. As weeds and weed are growing together, as good fish and bad fish are in the net. Let's go back to the questions we asked at the beginning. Number one, who is qualified to judge? I'll give you a hint. It's not us. Yes, we are children of the kingdom. Yes, we are salt and light. And yes, we are called to recognize sin both in ourselves and others. But the thing is, the Bible makes it painfully clear that we are not qualified to judge other people. As much as you might find a verse, and you can find them, that says, call out the sin or call out that sin, there are as many verses that say, do not judge. It makes it perfectly clear. And why is that the case? Well, number one, what we condemn others for, we do ourselves. Uh, not to mention we have sort of this sin stratification. Uh, if you commit a sin that no one knows about, it doesn't count, number one, right? And then, and then, it, goes, and then it goes from there. Uh, scriptural example of how this works. If you look uh, at Romans 1 into Romans 2, uh, Paul built up a stereotypical view of a sinner in Romans chapter 1, and he does such a good job that you can smell the sinner in the air. <sighs> Smells like transgression to me. But then in the next chapter, which ends up translating to the next sentence, he told his readers that anyone who judged those sinners is worse than they are because they are doing the same things and judging others for it. Jesus spells it out for us more than once. In Matthew 25, you have the parable of the sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats are being separated at the end of time. The sheep are those not who lived correctly, but who loved the world as Jesus did. The goats are those who did a lot of correct things, but they did not love the world as Jesus did. The sheep are taken into heaven, and the goats are expelled from the kingdom. The problem is the goats had no clue they were goats. They thought they were sheep. And they didn't find out until the end that they were goats. So the message is that we as sinners are not so qualified to tell others what is wrong with their lives. This is simply true. And when we approach it from that standpoint, I am going to tell you what's wrong with your life, we will lose that discussion more times than we will have any sort of positive effect. 
So what is our role in terms of calling out sin? Our role is to identify sin, but we are not to be judgmental. It is not our role to judge, but to walk alongside others as they struggle with their sin. And the reason why we walk alongside them as they struggle with their sin is because we need someone to walk alongside us as we struggle with our sin. It is a collective recovery project. It's not the well versus the sick. We are not better. We are in need of as much support as they are. We need others that struggle to walk with us and help us with our struggles. So what is the difference between identifying sin and condemning someone for sin? There is a huge difference. And the Bible has a lot to say on this subject. You could look again at Romans 1 and 2 or Matthew 25, but today we're going to look at Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now this is a super song statement here. Let's just take a moment. And... This should be all the incentive you need to not judge other people. Because the way in which you judge other people is the way in which you will be judged. So let me tell you something. Being judged non-judgmental is in your interest. It really is. It's in your interest to not carry that torch. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plague in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Hey, Richie, let me help you get that thing out of your arm. Just, just one second, Right? It's an effective example because of how plain it is. And it makes a point that really hits home. We are exceptionally good at identifying other people's faults. We are not so good at identifying our own or prioritizing dealing with our faults as much as we do prioritizing dealing with other people's faults. We cannot help someone with the speck that is in their eye while we have a plank in ours. We are inhibited by that plank. We cannot see clearly. And if we cannot see clearly, that's a problem in terms of helping someone else. So we are not to judge, but we are to be discerning. We are to see the difference between a life that is reflective of Jesus and one that is not. But that first extends to how we view ourselves. Does my life reflect Jesus? Is my going to this person to talk to them about what's wrong, does that reflect Jesus? Does the way that I talk to them and treat them reflect Jesus? It starts with you. And if you don't go in there with the right frame a view about yourself, then it's not going to go very well. Because when we have more discernment about our own sin, 
we are naturally less judgmental of others. The more we see ourselves as we are, the less likely we are going to be to pick at someone else's flaws. That discernment then helps us minister to others who are also stuck in sin. Therefore, we do not judge. We're told this over and over again. And the main reason from these parables is we don't have the last word. We are simply one of the fish in the nets. We are something growing in a field. We don't have the last word. Who does? God does, and more specifically, Jesus does. It is Jesus who will judge. Now, why is that such a significant thing for us to remember that Jesus will judge? Why does that make such a difference? Why was Jesus here? To go through what we go through, to experience life, to die and be resurrected so that we have some hope because we could not overcome sin on our own. So Jesus' whole message while he's here on earth is that God's love is greater than the sin in your life. And it's that dude that's going to judge. Which tells us what? He's not going to judge like we would judge. He's not going to look at the ledger and count up everything and see if it equals out for your favor. Jesus already knows it does not equal out for your favor. He already knows and he already died for you. So therefore, the one who is going to judge is the one who has poured out God's love on this world and said, you're not good enough, but God's love is. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. You've heard this before, I know. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 is actually my favorite part of this. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The one whose mission it is to save the world is the one who will judge at the end. And that is a really, really good thing. And it is only then that the weeds will be separated from the wheat, that the good fish will be separated from the bad fish, only when everything is said and done. So, what should the nature of our voice be in a world that rejects God? Well, the seeds of the kingdom are the gospel. And we, too, should be people of the gospel. Which means that the story we have to tell others about God is about how messed up we can be and how God still loves us because of that. You want to disarm someone who doesn't believe in God? Talk about how much God loves you even though you mess up. They're not used to hearing that story. They're not. That man, you know, I, 
I'm like this, or I have this problem, or I struggle with this problem, and I just can't overcome it, but God's love does in me. Tell them that story. We are people who have received remarkable, incomparable love and grace, a treasure that is worth giving everything up for. And we, in turn, are to show that grace and love of God recklessly to others, no matter who they are or what they've done. Is the love, forgiveness, grace, and power of God enough to change anyone? Anyone. Is it enough? Is it enough? Yes. Say it with me. Yes, it is enough. And therefore, our job is to make sure they get enough of what's enough until they believe that God really does love them. And then it is that love for God that begins to change them, not just in what they do, that's overly simplistic, but in who they are. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I once was a bad fish. But now, I'm not. Because you see, God leaves the 99 to find the one. And it doesn't matter why the one ran away. We are never told the one's motivations. We can assume greener pastures. But none of that is relevant to the shepherd. The shepherd leaves the 99 every time to find the one. And you can run the 99 number up as far as you want, and he will still leave to find the one. Because our God is passionate, passionate about saving us. He's passionate about saving us. And therefore, he won't draw any lines until the last minute. Till the last second, when everything is said and done. We get to take that to others. And that is a wonderful thing. Amen?